You take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 19. If you're looking up here and saying, Deemer looks kind of different. I don't have my glasses. I'm not wearing, I'm not wearing contacts. I, I, I broke my glasses the other day, the ones that, are, that have bifocals. <laughs> and, um, and so my normal glasses um, remind me of how old I am. And so... Um, it's easier to see this piece of paper without my glasses than with my glasses. So, for those of you who are younger than me, you have something to look forward to. Um, hopefully, this will not be a distraction as you see my, my full face unveiled and unhidden, that you'll be able to be all right with that. All right, Genesis chapter 19. <clears throat> um, this is our second week in probably the darkest chapter in the book of Genesis so far, a chapter that some would be, I think, tempted to skip over. And, and yet what God does and shows us in His dealings with the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is not meant to be a mere historical footnote. Uh, there is a message for us today in this Word. This is our second week in, in Genesis 19. Last week, we considered the rebellious city of Sodom and their descent into idolatry and greed and violence and sexual immorality. And while God has been graciously patient with this city for many years, the degree of evil has gotten so bad that it was, it was time for the Lord to take action because God is not only a God of grace and mercy, but also a God of justice and wrath. And so God sent two angels into the city to be witnesses of the evil of Sodom and then to destroy it. And man, did these angels witness the evil of Sodom in a big way, in its fullness, to the point where every man in Sodom surrounded Lot's house demanding that he surrender the angelic visitors to the mob. Now, no one knew that they were angels at this point. Uh, to surrender them to the mob so that they might be uh, brutally, sexually assaulted. And they end up attacking the house, and they're trying to break down the door, and, and the angels temporarily blind the men. And so now the angels have all of the evidence that they need, right? Uh, there, there's not a single righteous sodomite in the city, and Sodom is fit for nothing uh, but God's justice. And that's the first lesson of Sodom that we have to take to heart, that sooner or later sin must be judged, it must be dealt with. There comes a time when God's amazing patience runs out, and that the end of the path of rebellion against God always, always leads to destruction, no exceptions. As the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, that God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. These twin cities stand as a foreshadow of a worse punishment to come, which is eternal destruction in hell. But the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah not only serves as a warning to the ungodly, but it also serves as a very serious and sober warning to the godly, to God's own people as we consider the, not the downfall of the godless sodomites, but the downfall of a godly man named Lot. It is possible, it is possible to be a righteous person, a person who has faith in the one true God, a person we'd call saved, a genuine believer. It is possible for that person to become so entangled in sin and the world and moral compromise that he brings upon himself significant 
temporal loss and devastation in his own life and the lives of those close to him. Not that he's going to hell, but he has, in a way, brought a little bit of hell into his own life through unwise choices and weakened spiritual resolve. And that's what we see in the person of Lot here in Genesis 19. And so the message of Genesis 19 is not just telling unbelievers, don't be like Sodom. It's telling believers, don't be like Lot. But the warnings of Genesis 19 also, thankfully, come with some hope and some encouragement for anybody who has gone down Lot's path. Maybe some of you this morning uh, will be able to identify with Lot in some way. Maybe you you realize that you've strayed um, uh, off of the path that you should be on and onto a different path that you should not be on. And if that's so, uh, my prayer is that you're going to leave this place not only repentant but hopeful. So let's take a look at God's message for us today. Uh, Please, one more time, stand with me now. Uh, Out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God, uh, we are in uh, Genesis chapter 19. I'm not going to read the… well, yeah, we're going to read the whole chapter, even though uh, I dealt with the first half of this last week, but just for context, uh, to get our minds back into this story, we're going to go ahead and read uh, the whole chapter. Word of the Lord says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Uh, Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. They said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, 
Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Uh, behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Uh, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Let's pray. Father, what a hard chapter to read and a difficult chapter to hear. But it is your holy and inspired word, and you have a word for us in this this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us now to receive the message that you have, the sobering message, the sobering warnings in your word. Father, help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the scariest things in the world for me to read are stories about pastors that have fallen into such a degree of immorality that they end up losing their families, losing their ministries, ruining their witness and their effectiveness in the world for God. That kind of stuff hits home to me because I'm a pastor. And I shudder to think of something like that happening in my own life. But that kind of thing doesn't just happen to pastors. Uh, they're kind of high profile, and so maybe we notice those things more. But, but we see this with all kinds of Christians who, who end up in despair because their lives are, are ruined through a series of sinful choices. could be a whole host of things going on, uh, uh, drugs or alcohol, or, or, or their spouse uh, discovered their porn addiction or their affair, and they're packing their, their bags. Or it could be a whole host of sins with devastating consequences. Maybe you yourself 
have been in that situation where you found yourself doing and saying things you never, ever thought that you would do, committing types of sins you never, ever thought that you would commit. And as you sit there in the shambles of your ruined life and you're feeling the pain of the consequences, you wonder, how did this happen? That's an important question to ask because to understand how you got to such a low point will help you to protect yourself from yet another devastating fall. And to help with that, we're going to uh, more closely consider Lot's story and the kinds of lessons that we can learn from his life. And the first lesson that we learn from Lot this morning is a simple one, that the righteous are at odds with the world. The righteous are at odds with the world. Now, after reading a chapter like Genesis 19, uh, you may have a hard time agreeing that Lot is actually a righteous man. (laughs) based on everything that you know about Lot so far, not just in this chapter, but in previous ones as well. And so before we go much further, it'd probably be helpful to determine from Scripture whether Lot actually was righteous or if I'm just making that up. Uh, Maybe Lot was actually an unbeliever, because he sure lives like one in Genesis 19. I actually believe it's right to call Lot a righteous man for three reasons. Number one, Abraham believed that Lot was righteous. Uh, Let's remember, Abraham himself was a righteous man, a believer, a man of faith. Indeed, Scripture holds up Abraham uh, to be a man exemplary in his faith and calls him the father of all who believe. So if anybody knows anything about faith, it would be Abraham. And in chapter 18, when Abraham discovers God's intentions to destroy Sodom for its wickedness, he pleads that God would spare Sodom on account of the righteous who may be there, and first and foremost on his mind is his nephew Lot, whom he saw as one of the righteous. Second reason I believe Lot was righteous is because Lot behaved in some ways that are righteous. Uh, that's hard to see in Genesis 19, because the bad, th- because the bad things he did are, are so great and kind of overshadow any, any, any good things that he did. But you do see glimmers of godliness in Lot. They're just glimmers, and you have to look really hard and even squint to see them. But they are there. Uh, For example, in verse 2 and 3, we see Lot's humble and hospitable servant attitude towards the angels when they first arrive in Sodom. It really is parallel to how Abraham treats the guest in chapter 18. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was regarded as a moral virtue, a sacred duty. It was the, the mark of a righteous man. And we also see that Lot is concerned about the safety of these visitors. He wants to protect them. They're saying, we're going to spend a night in a town square, and Lot's like, no, you ain't. You are not doing that. And and, and so he he presses on them after their first refusal of of his invitation. You know, he could have easily backed out and said, you know, I tried. Let them go off into the square. But no, he keeps pressing them. Uh, he, he's, he cares about these people. He doesn't want them to spend uh, the night outside. And later on, when the mob gathers around that house and they're making their demands, Lot actually goes outside, closes the door, and he stands between his guests and the mob. That's a pretty bold thing to do, to stand between <clears throat> the rapists and the victims. And on top of that, in verse Seven, Lot even tells the people, do not act so wickedly. So he actually rightly judges and denounces their plans. Now, the third reason I believe that Lot was righteous, and I think this is kind of the slam dunk one, that's because the New Testament says he was righteous. I cheated. I looked at the back of the book, and that's what it said. And the Apostle Peter, if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says that God rescued righteous Lot 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Lot was a righteous man. It doesn't mean he was a perfect man, and it certainly doesn't mean he was a smart man. But it does mean that he was a believer, someone who had faith in the one true God, and he was a part of God's people. And Peter is not only showing us that Lot was righteous, but, but, it, but he's also in those verses showing us the tension that exists between the righteous and the wicked, the believer and the unbeliever. Uh, those two groups are at odds with one another. It says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct, uh, the, the sexual immorality of the wicked. He saw what was going on around him, and it repulsed him. His righteous soul, it says, was tormented by the things that he saw and heard. You see, if you're a believer in the one true God and you see an entire city raise its fist in rebellion against God, it will agonize your soul. It will torment you. Some of you have felt that kind of agony in your own righteous souls when you look around at America and you see things going on in the culture that are in blatant rebellion against God, whether it's the carnage of abortion or the trampling of biblical marriage in our, in our country or a whole host of other things. And so the things that grieve God grieves you because to be one of God's people is to share something of God's own heart. And so you're going to experience moments like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. should break our hearts. And it broke Lot's heart because Lot was a genuine believer. And again, that may be hard to believe based on some things we know about Lot. But as J.C. Ryle once said, remember that a true Christian may have many a blemish many a defect, many an infirmity, and yet be a true Christian nevertheless. You do not despise gold because it is mixed with much dross. You must not undervalue grace because it is accompanied by much corruption. Read on, Ryle says, and you will find that Lot paid dearly for his lingering in Sodom. But do not forget that Lot was a child of God. And so if he really was a child of God, what then can account for Lot's actions? In Genesis 19, yeah, he's got a few good moments in regards to his hospitality and all, um, uh, but, uh, but that's really all that we see, and those few good moments are overshadowed by a much larger uh, accounts of, of him doing some extremely troubling and disturbing things. And not just here, really, but even in previous uh, chapters, we, we, we see a man who is spiritually weak, and, and he commits some pretty heinous deeds. Now, I think we have a, we have, we have a clue. When we ask the question, well, well uh, what, what can account for this? I think we have a clue in that very passage from Second Peter that I read a moment ago. Um, not only does Peter say that Lot was distressed and tormented by the conduct of the wicked, he should have been, but Peter goes further and says that that righteous man was tormenting his own righteous soul as he lived among them day after day, which seems to indicate that some of Lot's distress was self-inflicted. He was in this situation by choice. He didn't have to put himself or his family in such a dangerous spiritual situation. He could have left Sodom any time that he wanted to. In fact, he didn't even have to go there in the first place. And that leads to the next lesson that we learned from Lot, and that is that the righteous can fall. The righteous can fall. So how does this even happen? How did Lot get to be the kind of spiritually weak man that we see in Genesis chapter 19? A man who is willing to offer up his daughters to the vile men of Sodom, a man who struggled to obey even angels and lingered 
in the city, in this doomed city. A man who, by the time the chapter is over, ends up in a cave, drunk, engaged in incestuous relationships with his own daughters. And you can say, well, he, he was drunk and unconscious. He didn't really know. You know it, it doesn't matter. He was responsible. Lot looks bad. I'm sure you agree. No one plans for something like this. No one begins their spiritual journey thinking that it's going to end up in such shambles, in such disgrace. But Lot ending up in that cave with his daughters in the wake of a ruined life, that does not come out of a vacuum. Lot's fall did not begin in Genesis 19. Indeed, no one who has fallen greatly suddenly falls. The final fall is merely the conclusion of a life filled with a series of bad choices. Oftentimes, choices that in the moment seem small and inconsequential, and sometimes choices that even might seem right. For Lot, the fall began many years prior to Genesis 19. You've got to go back to Genesis 13, to a, to a younger Lot, to a Lot that was more positive and ambitious and hopeful in the future, a lot who started well in chapter 12, following Abraham on the mission of God. Right? Abraham left Ur, but Lot went with him. It seems to indicate that he, he believed in those gospel covenant promises that God gave to, to Abraham. But as we saw many weeks ago, and I don't have time to really exposit chapter 13 for you, you can go online, the sermon is there, but Lot began to compromise in chapter 13 his spiritual priorities, which led into a, a lifestyle of compromise. He was allured by the bright lights in the big city of Sodom. He saw how prosperous and abundant the land was, how he could materially thrive there, maybe expand his business, uh, and he could, he could really take advantage of that area, even though the people of Sodom were notorious sinners exceptionally wicked. Even in spite of that, Lot could only see the material and temporal kickbacks of living in that region. While Abraham was walking by faith, trusting in the promises and provision of God, Lot was walking by sight. And he was walking with no spiritual consideration of the spiritual dangers for himself or his family. He's just happily tramping off towards the bright lights of Sodom, and all he can think about is the wonderful opportunities that he sees there. Certainly, it's, uh, certainly it's better, right, than being cramped up in the same land with Uncle Abraham, barely enough food and water for the flocks. By the way, I, if Lot was a, a smart man, I, I know that Abraham and Lot parted ways because, because there, there was, uh, it was a crowd control issue, uh, they, they, their, their households and their servants and their flocks got so big that it was hard for, for, for just one area to support them both. But Lot would have been, I think, much better off to downsize and stay with Uncle Abraham, who is the locus of God's blessing, the center of God's blessing. Stay close to that man. Whoever blesses him will be blessed, Scripture says. Genesis 13 tells us that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he's not in the city, he's just on the outskirts. And so maybe at first, Lot said, well, hey, I just want good land for my flocks and herds. I just want to make a little extra money. I actually, I don't want to live in that cesspool. Are you kidding me? So he just lives outside of it. 
James Boyce says that Lot wanted to live near enough to Sodom to enjoy his supposed privileges, but not get caught up in his life. Now, the problem is that Lot made the mistake that so many Christians today make. Too often, like Lot, Christians will make decisions about all kinds of areas of life, big and small, with little or no consideration of the spiritual dimension, the spiritual impact that those choices are going to have on their lives. No, no, no consideration about how this is going to spiritually impact me or, or my family. Uh, we make decisions with little consideration of the wisdom of God's Word. Yeah, I know God says this, but... Uh, we are instead allured by the things of this world uh, like Lot. We see something, we like it, we take it. That's pretty much all there is to it. No-brainer. This happens all the time. Not just in areas of uh, where we will do business and where we will live, but, but in all areas of life. Uh, we do this with entertainment. We, we make entertainment choices simply based on whether or not the story amuses us or if the song has a good beat, as opposed to asking ourselves, would God approve of me being amused by such things? Uh, would God approve of, of, of me being amused by listening to these lyrics, by, by gazing at these video images on the screen? Is this going to help my walk with God, or is this going to hinder my walk with God? How, how's it going to impact my family, my, my family's walk with God? We, we make all kinds of choices. We make clothing choices based on whether this item is hip or cool, rather than asking, does this honor the Lord? Am I more interested in bringing attention to myself than I am to the Lord? Does this choice hurt me or others spiritually? Who thinks about that? Uh, we, we may take a, a second lustful glance at someone that we see on the street that we're, we're not married to that person, and, and we think that it's no big deal. It's, it's just a small thing, we, and we simply think about the immediate kickback we'll get from enjoying that thing. You see, friends, there are so many ways that we can be lot-like, and compromise spiritual priorities by playing on the outskirts of Sodom. Never planning, of course, to go all the way in. We never plan on going all the way in. In chapter 13, Lot had no intentions of living in Sodom. He's pitching his tent near Sodom. But when you get to chapter 14, guess where we find Lot? You'll never guess. He's living in Sodom. Uh, he's no longer near the city, but he is in the city. That's what the text says in Genesis 14. By the time you get to chapter 19, he now has a house in the city, and what's more, he is sitting there in the city gate, which means he's an official in the city. Lot becomes more and more entangled in this city and with its people, and as Lot compromises his priorities, he also compromises his witness. You see, one might say, well, well hey, Lot's in Sodom. He's now a city official. That could be good, right? If Lot is a righteous man, he can have an influence on the city, right? Well, he could. And I would go further and say that he should. Because none of what, I, what I've been saying here is meant to suggest that believers are to be completely detached from unbelievers, uh, that we're to have no association with others. If Lot represents one extreme in regards to worldly compromise and entanglements, the other extreme would be total disengagement from the world. Our mission as believers is to represent God in the world and lovingly point others to God. We, we can't do that if we're not having any kind of association with anybody else whatsoever. But Lot's big problem was that he was never, ever mission-minded. You would have thought that he would have learned that from Abraham. 
that the goal of God's people would be to bless the world. That's at the heart of the Abrahamic promises. But Lot wasn't interested in blessing the world through gospel proclamation and influence. He wasn't going to Sodom to plant a church. He wasn't going to share the Word of God with his new neighbors. He's not like Daniel in Babylon. Remember Daniel? Daniel was bold. He stood out and stood up for God. Serving God came before the comforts of living in the palaces of Babylon. Serving God was more important to him than the prestige and the power that he could get there. That kind of man can be used powerfully by God in the midst of a wicked culture. But there's nothing anywhere to indicate that Lot was interested in that kind of life. There's nothing to indicate that Lot was living the kind of life that was having an influence on Sodom. We instead have every reason to believe, after careful consideration of the text, that he wasn't influencing Sodom, but Sodom was influencing him. Lot was a spiritually weak man and compromised his priorities and he compromised his witness. In fact, in verse 6, Lot blows his big opportunity. As these evil men of Sodom are demanding that Lot bring out the visitors so that they can abuse them, Verse 6 says that Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Okay, that's, a, that's good. That's a great start. Good start. And, and as a believer, when you point out someone's sin, what's the next thing you ought to do? You point them to the truth. You, you point them to the one who saves. You plead with them to repent of their sins and turn to God, lest God judge them. That's not how Lot engages with them. He's bold enough to tell them that they are doing wrong, but he is so cowardly in that he does not mention God. And his solution for their wickedness, his solution for their wickedness is not God. His solution is more compromise. This is Lot. This is his character. It's about compromise, pragmatism, expediency. Uh, it's about what he thinks will work and make sense in his own eyes. That, that's, that's why he made his choice for Sodom in the first place way back years ago in chapter 13, making choices with no reference to God whatsoever. He keeps on doing that, and he's doing it here in chapter 19. He says in verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. I can't imagine what his daughters felt like when they heard that. Lots of theories have been written about why in the world Lot would make such a heinous and repugnant offer. I'm not going to get into all those uh, today. You can study that on your own if you want. But some of you, some of you have daughters. Would it even cross your minds to, to, to say something like, even say something like that? Whatever scheme Lot may have had in his mind, whatever rationale he had for this, this is insane. There's absolutely no uh, excuses for what he did. To offer up his daughters to be used and abused all night, and who knows if they would even survive such a night. Yes, hospitality in the ancient Near East was important, and there is much about that that is good. But this has gotten out of hand. It's almost as if Lot's own pride is on the line, and nothing is going to keep him from being seen as hospitable, even if he must sin to do it. 
even if it means sinfully and cruelly abdicating his responsibility as a father to do it. These men are under the protection of my roof. What about your girls? Compromise. It's compromise. It's appeasement. This is how Lot has been for years. This is part of his character. I guarantee you it started in small ways. But a lifestyle of small compromises grows bigger and bigger. It is a slippery slope, my friend. And now now we see here the most shocking compromise of all. And he tries to stop the sin of the sodomites by giving them another sinful option. He's trying to curtail wickedness with more wickedness. No wonder his words carry no weight, no power, no authority with the sodomites. He had been living a compromised life among them for years. And, and, and now his, his attempt to suddenly judge their wicked behavior and tell them what they need to do enrages the men. His witness had been compromised long before this night. We see more evidence of this in verse 19. When the angels tell, uh, tell uh, Lot to warn his family about God's judgment, look at verse 14. It says, So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were uh, uh, to marry his daughters. By, by the way, in that culture, when, when you're engaged to somebody, it, it was considered in a, in a way marriage, even though it hadn't been consummated yet. That was like Joseph and Mary's situation. Same thing here. That's why it calls them sons-in-laws, even though they haven't married the daughters yet. So, so he, he goes to his sons-in-law, and he says, Up, oh, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, to be joking. Now, this certainly says something about the hardness of the heart of an unbeliever. We could talk about that, but I don't want to go there right now. That's for another time. Uh, that all of us in our natural sinful state blow off warnings of God's judgment. That's true. That's an example of this. But I think verse 14 says a lot more about Lot than it does about these sons-in-law. He warns of judgment. And, and, uh, and, and his, sons-in-law, his sons-in-law not only don't believe him, that's not surprising. That's not surprising that they hear a word of judgment and they don't believe it. That's not surprising. The surprising thing is the explanation here of why they don't believe. They think that he is joking. They don't take him seriously. Why? There's only one reason why. It's because Lot has never talked this way before. A lot is not known to be one who talks about the Lord. He's never been a witness uh, uh, of his faith. He's never talked about uh, wickedness and God's judgment. He's never talked about repentance and faith as the way to be made right with God. He's lived there for years. These guys were going to marry his daughters, and he never talked to them about the most important matters of life. File that in your cap, fathers, when you're talking to interviewing potential boyfriends for your daughters. He never talked to them about this. If if he had talked to them uh, about this before, if he had a pattern of living this way, they still might not have believed him, but they wouldn't think that he was joking. Uh, They would have said, well, this guy is crazy, but he's obviously very serious. He, He really believes this. But Lot's just a big joke to them. Surely you're kidding, Lot. You're telling us about God's judgment now? That's a good one. After all these years, after you've been living your life of luxury in Sodom, 
If this is so important, why didn't you talk to us about this before? <laughs> Good one, Lot. No one will listen to Lot. No one will listen. Because his life has been years uh, 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 shot full of compromise. I wonder about us. And we live in a culture that's growing darker day by day, becoming more and more Sodom-like every day, if not worse. If you started telling your family, your neighbors, your coworkers about the coming judgment, would they laugh at you? Uh, uh, Not because they they think it's funny, but because they think you're joking? Uh, Would they say, well, why is this the first time I'm, I'm hearing about this? Has our compromise ruined our witness? Have we become so much like the world that we have lost our voice and we have become irrelevant? Churches talk all the time about we want to be relevant. We want to be relevant to the world. We want to, you know, and the way that they seek to be relevant to the world is to be like the world. That makes you completely irrelevant. You have nothing for them. You're one of them. But there's more. Lot compromised his, his, his priorities, and he compromised his witness, but, but he, he compromised his family. He compromised his family. What started out as a simple business decision years ago has now jeopardized his entire household. I mean, we find Lot's daughters engaged. Engaged to whom? Men of Sodom. Unbelievers. Bible warns about this. But Bible warns God's people in the Old and New Testament not to become so entangled with unbelievers in marriage because they will lead your heart astray. Happens over and over again in the Bible. Happens over and over again today. Doesn't mean that if you are in a marriage right now and you're married to an unbeliever, doesn't mean that God can't use that. Uh, I've heard stories of how the Lord has worked in wonderful ways uh, to, to use a believing spouse to reach an unbelieving spouse. But but for those of you who are not yet married, don't, don't like, go into that situation on purpose. Don't use that as a, as a mission strategy. I'm, I'm going to find a real cute unbeliever and evangelize them to the Lord. Because, because while I've seen cases where the Lord has worked in those kinds of situations, I've seen many more cases that, that it is not. And, and typically the person who ends up getting changed and, neg- and affected is the, is the believing person. And it, and it opens up the door to a, to a life of heartbreak and, and misery. And here, Lot, as a father, compromised. He did not raise daughters who loved the Lord, but who loved the things of this world. Which is not surprising, because they're just following in Lot's footsteps, right? They're, they're, they're doing what he does. And by the way, back then, uh, in that culture, fathers had way more control over who their daughters would marry. Right? I mean, you know, today you, you, you got daughters and there's only so much that you can do you know, about, about that. But not so back then. Lot did not need to allow this. But again, I don't know this for sure, but I, I'm, I'm making inferences based on everything else we know about, uh, about Lot that probably pragmatism and expediency co- uh, uh, guided his choice and compromise. Hey, we've got to keep the family line going. Someone's got to take care of these girls after I'm gone. I just can't keep them unmarried forever. They'd be mad at me. And besides, these guys are a lot nicer than the other men of Sodom. However, I would remind you, Lot, that when the angry mob surrounded your house, demanding to rape your guests, that the text says that every single man in the city was there. 
Let that sink in. Everyone was there. Every man was there, ready to engage in this detestable act, including the men who would marry your girls. And by the way, his girls learned well from Lot the art of compromise and expediency, didn't they? Uh, to put their own goals above God's priorities, as later on they just conspired together to get their father drunk. Why? Well, because their, their fiancés are dead, and they need to extend the family line. And this isn't uh, the moral thing to do, but it's necessary. Uh, they, they learn compromise from Lot's compromises. So be careful, fathers, and be careful, mothers. Your daughters are watching you. Your sons are watching you. And what will they see after 18 years of living with you? Do they see compromise? Uh, do they see in you someone who maybe comes to church on Sunday and you smile and you say all the right things, but at home they see something 180 degrees different? Uh, maybe someone who's willing to tear others down with words? Someone who gossips, someone who speaks holy at church and in Bible study and uses foul language in the privacy of their own home. So many kids reject the faith, not because they check it out and find it wanting, uh, but, but because they examine the spiritual power in their parents' lives and they find that wanting. Not that parents are supposed to be perfect. And, and, and not that ultimately a parent can change somebody's hearts. Only the Lord can bring someone to salvation, but the Lord uses means. And one of the means that the Lord often uses and loves to use are parents, godly parents. And so, are you one of the means that God might use to, to bring your son or daughter to faith, or are you a hindrance to that? Again, I'm not talking about perfection. There's no perfect parent in here. We're all flawed, we're all messed up, and we all make mistakes all the time. But even when we as parents fail... Do our kids, even then, do they see humility and brokenness and repentance? Or do they just see cover-up and excuses? Uh, do we ask our kids for forgiveness and use that as an opportunity to say, you know what, kids, daddy needs the gospel too because daddy's a sinner. And you just saw it right there. Pray for me as I seek to repent of my sins. What, what do your kids see? Not just you doing the, the right thing, but when you fail to do the right thing. That can be an opportunity to teach and guide them to the Lord as well. And if you're like me, you fail a lot, so you have a lot of those opportunities. A lot compromised as a father. He compromised as a husband. You see, Lot, a righteous man, was repulsed by some things about Sodom, but he also loved some things about Sodom, and it was hard for him to leave. It was hard for him to give all of that up. Even when destruction is at his very doorstep, we are told that Lot lingers, and he has to be dragged out of the city. He was a conflicted man. He hated what he saw in Sodom, and yet became so entangled with it that his heart was pulling him back towards it. But if it tugged at him, it tugged at Mrs. Lot even more. Verse 24 says, The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. What, what happened there? Jesus gives us a, a clue. Jesus, in warning, this is in Luke chapter 17, and he's warning about the future judgment that he's going to bring when he returns. 
And he, and he compares what will happen to what has happened in the past. And he says that the days of the final judgment will be as the days of Lot. Jesus says it will be as in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus says, remember, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Do you see what happened? Lot was allured by many things about Sodom, and he had trained his wife well. She followed in his his example, and she exceeded Lot and her love for the world. And so evidently, in spite of the angel's warnings to not look back, she did. And here in Luke 17, Jesus suggests that it wasn't just necessarily a glance over the shoulder as she is running, but maybe she stops running. Maybe she turns around and she just stands there, her heart breaking over a sinful, compromised life that she loved, maybe even turning back and going back towards the city. You're crazy a lot. I can't do this. I can't leave this. I love this. I want this. She couldn't stop thinking about her wonderful life in the city, the opportunities, the entanglements, the possessions, the entertainments. And so she, she does not heed the angel's warning and run with all of her might. Her worldly lifestyle became more important than God's word in that moment, and she pays the price. And some scholars suggest that as Lot's wife is falling behind, and as she, she turned back, she was maybe encased or encrusted with the sulfurous materials that were going through the air. She compromised, but she followed her husband's example. Kent Hughes says that this very woman who bore his children, who was uh, on the most intimate terms with him, who knew the contours of his soul, saw nothing in him or in his faith to point her from earth to heaven. It's a warning to you husbands. You have an impact for better or for worse on your wife's spiritual strength. That's a biblical principle. Read Ephesians 5.23 and following if you don't believe me. And there are many Christian men many Christian men who are too passive and too weak and too afraid of their wives to take spiritual leadership in the home, not in a tyrannical, heavy-handed kind of way, that's not godly, but in a loving way, in a a way with resolve, leading the way and talking with their wives and children about the Lord, about about the Scriptures, praying with them, praying for them, reading the Bible with them, shepherding them, helping them to make decisions in line with God's Word. But you can never do that, husbands, if you yourselves are are compromised men. They'll just think you're joking. And you'll train them to do as you do, not do as you say. We see here that even followers of God are not immune to gross sin, not immune to, to, to falling into confusion, not immune to being influenced uh, by the environment that they are in. Uh, you can't compromise. You can't compromise a little here and a little there and think you're going to come out unscathed. You can't surround yourself with ungodly people and ungodly things and ungodly speech and ungodly activity nonstop, 24-7, and not be affected by it. Lot did an unwise thing by remaining in a compromising situation for so many years, and now he's been corrupted by Sodom. 
for the believer today, for you. It is so important to keep careful guard over what goes into your head and into your heart. Guard your heart, the Scripture says, for out of it will flow, flows the issues of life. Especially for those of you who are surrounded by ungodly people and speech and activity all day long, whether it's in the workplace, and, and you can't help that, it's just there, uh, or because other family members or whatever. It's especially important for you to be intentional about building healthy relationships with other believers, to join, to join us in church weekly, to be involved in a Bible study and, and a small group with God's people. That's why we have this in our, in our, um, uh, our, our membership covenant, that, that you'll, you'll not just show up here on, on Sunday morning for the main worship service, but that you're going you're to strive to be in, involved in, in something else outside of that, another opportunity for you to be around other believers, to be ministered to to be helped and strengthened and encouraged. You can go back into that situation, into an ungodly world, and actually be salt and light and a more effective witness to the lost for the gospel to keep you encouraged and and accountable and on the right track. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, writing to a church that was plagued with with compromise, he points them back to the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament of people being ensnared by temptation. And Paul says that these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The warning there is don't become prideful. Don't become spiritually cocky. Don't read Genesis 19 and think, well, that's crazy. That could never happen to me. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Take heed. Take heed of the warnings we find in the Scriptures, lest we fall. You can fall. You can experience a moral collapse of of cataclysmic proportions, as extreme as lots or worse, but it won't happen all at once. It'll happen slowly, with a little compromise here and a little compromise there. I'm reminded of that song uh, from Casting Crowns. Carrie and I talked about this recently, Slow Fade. If you don't know that song, Slow Fade, now, now a lot of Christian, modern Christian music is, is, is fluff, but man, this one, this one punches you in the gut. And you should look that song up and even watch the video. It's pretty powerful. But, but it, it talks about, about that, that, uh, that it's a slow fade. The, 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 the fall uh, happens gradually, bit by bit. It, it's, the song says, thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. People never, never crumble in a day. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But if you have fallen... You may be thinking, I've already blown it. I've already sank low. My, my life is already in shambles. Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me, Deemer? Or will I forever be cast off by God? And the answer is no. So you, you survived like the hardest part of this message. The final part's coming, and it's going to be a lot shorter than the other one. So don't worry, we are almost done. But, but we, we want to wrap it up with some hope here. And that is the final lesson that we learned from Lot's life is that the righteous will be saved, but not through their own righteousness. The good news of Genesis 19 is that God's people are not saved because of their own righteousness. You see, Lot was a righteous man, but his own righteousness was not sufficient. And if Lot was going to be saved by his own righteousness, then Lot is a dead man. He is going to be incinerated with the rest of Sodom because his own righteousness is mixed up with a lot of sin. A lot of failures, a lot of corruption. So what's the basis then of God's salvation? Two things. First, look at verse 16. It says, but he lingered 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord saved Lot not because of Lot's awesomeness. Lot wasn't awesome. The Lord didn't save Lot because of Lot's goodness. Lot wasn't good. Lot was far from good. But simply because the Lord is merciful to his people. He's merciful. Do you know that's the reason why God saves anybody? Christian brother, Christian sister, that's why God saved you. Not because he, not, not because in eternity past, he looked down the corridors of time and he said, Man, I tell you what, you know, I really need to, to have you on my team. You're incredible. That's not, that's not, he looks down the corridor of, of time and sees sinners who've rebelled against him and who do not, not deserve his salvation, but he saves them anyway. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. His own mercy. Be encouraged by that. But also, there's another reason why God saved Lot. In spite of Lot's sins, his failures, his compromises, in the middle of the destruction of Sodom, in the middle of verse 29, are three beautiful words, God remembered Abraham. Lot was not saved because of Lot's own righteousness. He was saved because he was connected to, he was attached to, the man of promise. Abraham, God's man, God's prophet, who interceded for his sinful nephew, who stood between God's judgment and Lot and pleaded for God's mercy. That's always how God saves, through the man of promise. Abraham was a foreshadow and an image of how God ultimately saves anyone, the man Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate man of promise, standing between sinful man and the wrath of God. And brothers and sisters, in the face of God's certain judgment of the wicked and in the face of your own devastating failures, you too have, you can have hope for salvation through your attachment to the man of promise. It's not about your righteousness. It's all about his. The heart of the gospel is not about what you do. Let me say it again because some of you need a reminder. The heart of the gospel is not about what you do. And you should be praising God with me because of that. It's not about what you do. And even Christians can forget this. It's about what he did. It's about what he did. Jesus was and is perfectly righteous, and He stands as the righteous representative of all who put their hope in Him, so that all who put their hope in Him are seen by God as clothed with the perfect, unstained, unblemished righteousness of Christ. And all who put their hope in Him receive the full benefits of Christ's death on the cross, which is, which is full payment, which is full judgment from God the Father for all of your righteous deeds. He paid that on behalf of all who hope in Him. So if you are a believer who has fallen, yes, there is pain in the fall, and yes, sometimes there can be temporal consequences from our actions. We see that uh, for Lot. Sin is deadly, even for the believer. But for the believer, it is not ultimately deadly. As Lot was delivered from the flames of judgment and is in heaven today, so you can be rest assured that your salvation hinges not on you but on God's mercy and your attachment to the man of promise by faith. The Bible says if you have the faith of Abraham, 
then you are a son of Abraham. You are a daughter of Abraham, heirs to the promises of God, which includes complete forgiveness of sin, ultimate salvation, and an eternal home in heaven forever because God always saves His people. He never lets them go. He always holds them fast. So put your hope, put your hope in the mercy of God. Put your hope right now in the man of promise. If you're an unbeliever, absolutely put your hope in this man right now and flee the wrath to come. If you are a believer, put your hope in this man. Continue to do so. God saves you and He keeps you saved. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, because in Him there is no condemnation. As Paul says in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You have a Savior. You have one who intercedes on your behalf. He has saved you, and He will make sure that you get home, because He will hold you fast. Let's pray.